dear listener, and welcome back to Flight Through Entirety, the only Doctor Who podcast doing an array of our usual tropes from 2021 to 2024, but just a year or two early. I'm Nathan. I'm Peter. I'm Johnny. And I'm Picasso's nicked weeping woman for this one. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's been a whole week, but somehow it seems like no time has passed at all. On the upside, that Dr. Moon seems nice and we have a very handsome and attentive new husband. In fact, it doesn't even occur to us to worry about what's happening to the Doctor in the Forest of the Dead. So, we had a cliffhanger last week that we were all pretty on board with. How do we feel about the resolution of the cliffhanger this week? Um, can I say I was confused by the squareness gun? <laughs> but for years, well, not for years, but while it was going on, I was thinking, that's Jack's gun. Why does she have Jack's gun? This is the 51st I century. I thought, maybe she's Jack. But it is the 51st century. Yes. Yeah, so well, I think the implication is that she's been on the TARDIS and found it kind of... Yeah. Oh, that's what I Hanging think. around in a storage roundel or something. Does know? the Doctor steal that off Jack in the episode or not? In the Doctor Dances, I think. Does he pocket it? I think he pockets it and she finds it. Oh, okay. Isn't yeah. it okay. foolish of River not being able to know that you can reverse the settings and close up those gaps so the astronaut men can't <laughs> It is a great effect, isn't it? And particularly this time where the, the hole is kind of on an angle. Uh, so, And I was just imagining all of the set people, all of the carpenters and stuff, soaring holes <laughs> in the walls and stuff like that. Hating moth. <laughs> Is that because River Song shoots from the hip? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. I was so pleased to see that the TARDIS teleport that we actually see right back in an unearthly child, those four uh, horizontal roundels behind the monitor that you also have in the Pertwee era, works perfectly well and Susan could have easily been rescued at any point. And it could have solved so many problems, really. At any point, it's always been working, tells us everything. So we don't really pick up on what's going on in the library kind of straight away, do we? It's a little while in, or did I dream that? It's a little bit of sort of running around with nothing happening, but it's mainly focused on Donna. But we get to Donna by having the girl watching television and now the girl's been watching cartoons all last episode with a little cameo from David Tennant I think on the screen um, but now she's watching TV that's you know either the world around her or the library and so we see Donna appear in an ambulance and turn up at this sort of sanatorium or something. Isn't that interesting as well? Because Rose puts in an appearance on various screens this year. But not this episode. Not this episode. And and it's a Judeo-Christian ambulance. (laughs) It is, yes. So I think you have to you have to be careful of the um, the girl watching Doctor Who and then deciding to switch to another channel while Doctor <laughs> Who while Doctor Who is on. But luckily, More than once. <laughs> only, <laughs> only if it was Buck Rogers. Yeah. But luckily, it's a soap opera and it's starring Catherine Tate, so it's okay. Ah. It's all right. Um, and I love that first section of this episode, and I think that the jump cuts from from section to section of Donna's experience work really, really nicely. And it's, it's clear what's going on, but it's also slightly unsettling. Mm. 
I think the kind of in-universe explanation for it, which becomes clear throughout the episode, is that the computer's not functioning properly. And so it can only create a sort of TV-like simulacrum of the real world. And so it doesn't bother filling in the bits between scenes, which we don't see because we're watching it on television. But Donna's aware that those things don't seem to have happened or don't seem to have made it to screen, and she sort of remembers them. So it's another shortcut, like all the kids being the same. Yeah, you know. yeah, it just saves memory. But It's a but- special edition DVD where we cut out all the running down corridors, isn't it? <laughs> That's right. And <laughs> voice the ogron. Apparently it came to Moffat during the writing of it that it wasn't initially the thing, that he wanted to tell a story about Donna. He didn't want to cut back to the library during that story, partly because Donna's story is meant to be taking place over a number of years. And so he's aware that he has to cut directly from scene to scene in Donna's life. And then having her comment on that fact Mm. means that she's in an artificial world Mm. uh, because it's a world that about the rules that TV obeys, mm. that it doesn't show you everything. It just shows you the salient things. And it's interesting that Moffat is the one to do this because he is the writer and later the showrunner, most likely to subvert narrative and to not show things in the right order and to jumble up what you're seeing on screen. Yeah. yeah. And what does it tell us about Donna? It kind of implies that what Donna wants is the quiet life the husband, the house with two kids. And actually what she told us at the beginning of this series was she wants to run away and have adventures with the Doctor. And so it's interesting and it's sort of saying that Donna, there's this duality to Donna, that in fact she's saying one thing on the surface, but actually what she truly desires is something else. But every child, every teenage child that needs to escape their Bobdignag mother will, you know, underneath just want clemency and safety and... That's what Donna's mother says, isn't it? You just want to meet a man. Yeah, Mm. yeah. But first of all, you've got to make that escape. And we've got this recurring image of Donna as a bride. So here and in the future, she's constantly in that white dress to – well, she's not constantly. She's occasionally in it to remind us about what's important to her. Yeah. You know, the other point about that is that River and the Doctor are husband and wife. And Donna has been saying all season, don't mistake me and the Doctor – for being a couple in a kind of the lady doth protest too much kind of way. And so it's interesting that the moment she's kind of out of the library and out of consciousness, she imagines herself getting married. And I don't know that it's entirely her because Lee is, it becomes clear, uh, a real person who's living in this same fake world with some sort of agency and stuff like that. So, you know, it's not just a reality that Dr. Moon has made up for her. He does Mm. introduce the two of them. But it is like a, a proper relationship, I think, as far as she's concerned. I had never thought of that before, that you've got a husband and wife in the real world and now Donna mm. is married in the other world. I think the fact that they keep getting mistaken for a couple huh. uh, is obviously prefiguring the Dr. Donna thing mm. uh, at the at the end, like making it clear that they are in some way really, really closely related. And a jolly spin that we've unpacked the last three seasons and we don't need to do that again. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, two companions who generally were in love with the Doctor and would have married him if they could and finally a companion who is not in love with him and would never want to marry him, keeping on being mistaken as his other half. Yeah, mm. yeah. 
Though I think what River provides is is the wife and the companion, now Donna, later Amy, provides the girlfriend. And so there is this really, there's this triangle that Moffat loves a, a love triangle, but it's also sexualizing the Doctor. And, and Moffat's the key voice in sexualizing the Doctor since the girl in the fireplace. And to give him a wife and then to have a kind of slight tension between two female characters, all right, not very uh, constructed in the kind of modern sense that yeah. we'd like, mm. but it is that he sees the Doctor as a sexual being and he wants he kind of wants to remind us of that every so often. I think that is something Moffat leans into, but I do think it's something that Russell starts. Like I think that Russell does start sexualizing the Doctor as a deliberate choice mm. because he's a leading man, because he's an adult and because he wants to tell drama about human beings. Um, and in a way, Russell's Doctor is more confidently sexy than Moffat's Doctor, I think, mm. um, sometimes. And certainly that reaches its apotheosis in Matt Smith, who is so totally clueless about all of that sort of yeah. stuff. Do you think yeah. this is a reflection of the two showrunners where uh, Russell is very confident in kind of his personality and sexuality, whereas Moffat is less confident in kind of putting himself forward like that and so does it through the character of the Doctor, who's nevertheless still quite bumbling? Yeah, mm. well, I think he's critiquing his own kind of masculinity, as we said last week, and so he has doctors who are unsure and incompetent in series eight he has danny and clara and danny suddenly becomes sort of silly and second guessing and finds it difficult to ask clara out even though he is in all sorts of other respects a very sort of competent and confident person and i think that that's how moffat writes romantic comedy and the relationship between the doctor and and river not here but once they actually know one another becomes a kind of screwball comedy of the type that moffat is incredibly good at writing and of course this season series four um, the Doctor and Donna's relationship is a screwball comedy. That's how it's set up in Runaway Bride and then Partners in Crime. And to have a screwball comedy, you've got to have that frisson between the characters. Carol Lombard and Clark Gable. <laughs> no, it's truly. And she yeah, was caught yes. on the most beautiful, it's a tragic early death. But that they were having an off-screen affair. And it's the same with – it isn't the same with, with Tracy and Hepburn, but the tension is still there, you might say. But, yes, all true great – Screwballs, again, Catherine Hepburn in Philadelphia Story mm. with Jimmy Stewart and, of course, Archie Leach. is superb, absolutely superb. There's another triangle. Mm. Yes, you're right. It, it, the reason this season works is because it's all about antecedents and proper, stable, filmic, literary antecedents. Mm. I think that Donna's relationship with the Doctor is properly complex in the way that a true relationship is full of contradictions and full of looking below the surface to see what's really there. And she starts this season saying, I'm not interested in a romantic relationship with you. And yet by but she quickly becomes the person who can say the things to the Doctor that no one else can say, that yeah. Martha couldn't say, that Donna couldn't say. And we have that beautiful scene at the end where she says, you know, are you all right? You know, because actually I'm all right too and yeah. it's saying something completely different. Yeah. And earlier in the season, doesn't she say something like, I don't know what who else you've been travelling with but this These doesn't... kids. Yeah, yeah that's kids. right. Yeah. And it, But this doesn't fly with me. So we've got on one hand saying, I don't want anything more from you, but on the one hand, a much deeper relationship with the Doctor than we've seen 
yeah. with the other two. And so that's what I mean by kind of properly complex. I like that. I, I like, like where that you're going with this, Johnny, because it's exactly the same way that screwball comedy developed in, through the 40s and 50s into the buddy movie and how mm. Hawks was progenitor of that. So he mostly made films about men who were great blokes and the only women's comedy he ever made was Anita Lou's Gentlemen Prefer Blondes with right. Marilyn Monroe and, mm. and Jane Russell, which has some of those <laughs> iconic scenes. Um, but he said, oh, no, I only make buddy movies. This just happens to be about two fellas that are mm. being played by yeah. women. And it's the same thing we have here. This works because it's Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Mm. Do you yeah. see Hepburn and Tracy in this? Because yeah, they, they, yes. they were kind of signalled up front as being the they were, inspiration. But, she, but it was also, that was interesting because they were both queer, identifying if only in private and mm. outed in their later lives with a lot of complex stuff going on between them. And I do believe that she was in love with him. She certainly, um, Hepburn certainly protested that she was. But there were a lot of layers to all these relationships. But absolutely, that was also a fraternity because you could argue in the same, in the same vein that the, the reason the Avengers in the 60s worked is because he played the woman and she played the man. <laughs> <laughs> and it's so nice as well that Donna's particular subplot in this episode leans into her age. Yeah, um, yes. You couldn't have played yes. this subplot with Rose. It would have been a bit silly and mm. a bit weird. Whereas the fact that Donna is approaching middle age um, means that you can play those kind of aspiring to a family kind of uh, plots with her. I think she does the mother thing just spectacularly oh, well. When she turns up at the playground and sends the kids off and the thing that she says to them is now don't fight, I just thought <laughs> that was so perfect. There was a, just a little moment of real realism in that, mm. which I thought was terrific. And cutting to the end of the episode, uh, when she realises that the children have vanished, that is such a portrayal of real anguish. Oh, that is chilling. That th is chilling. I think that's nearly unwatchable, mm. actually. And, you know, like I don't have children, so I, I, there's a limit to my ability to kind of empathise with that. But I think it is horrible. Oh, yeah. I think from my personal everyone, every parent has had that experience of looking behind them and can't see the kids and yeah. you don't know where they are just for an instant. And it's it's... It's really nicely played in the editing and the music and mm. that terrible wail of anguish that yeah. Catherine Tate lets and out of that And she repeats herself. She keeps looking from one bed to the oh. other, touching one bed to the other. It's like she can't stop. Mm. I think that here's another Moffat trope that we're spotting for the first time and we see it again in World Enough and Time where – the companion is put into a situation that apparently seems to last for years and years and years and they're just kind of tortured. Mm. And I don't like it. Like, I dislike it a great deal. And I think, like, you travel with the doctor because you like him and because you're having fun. And so doing that to the companions, I think, makes them less real. We talked about the Hinchcliffe era and pushing Sarah downstairs and blinding her and hypnotising her and all of those things she complains about in Hand of Fear. And it, we just kind of felt, or I remember us saying that the amount of kind of torment that she's put through makes her a less real person. Now, I don't think that happens to Donna here, but I think it's a, it's a mistake to be quite that cruel to a companion. Amy, Amy's baby dissolving into a pile of sick in her arms. Yeah, uh, similarly, yeah. similarly, um, a similarly questionable moment. I suppose. Yeah. I suppose the difference with the difference is that Donna Donna's story here gets reversed. Yeah. Whereas Bill's does not. No. Um, and even Amy's in um, uh, the girl who waited. Yeah. 
um, is kind of fixed in it. So she's put through 30 years of torment. Yeah, and, yeah. Um, th- that's similarly reversed in a kind of science fiction-y way at the end. So I think it, to me it comes back to something you were saying before about what's Moffat's attitude to death and what is the what is the virtue in showing death to be reversible or in this case showing anguish or torment to be reversible. Um, that to me is what he does all the time Yeah, is put characters through a great deal, yeah. a great deal a of anguish and then um, flicks a bit of a switch and puts them back. It's yeah. numeric, isn't it? Do you think there's a sense here of it being a net positive for Donna in that even though she is left with great anguish over having not having her children and her husband with her anymore, she's been given a life that's so far eluded her and she has full memories of that life? Except that it is fake. It is really fake. The children are are not real and they even acknowledge that. So up to the point where Miss Evangelista reveals. Yeah. Yeah. And and because that isn't really seven years, is it? It is just a little while, but all of the bits are being left out, mm. you know. Like like she isn't in the way that Bill genuinely is stuck in that hospital for all that time. She isn't. Um, but she's still, I don't know, I still think it is sort of going a little bit far. And it okay. does give her it does give her a grand love affair, which I really like, mm. you know. And I'm sort of glad that it doesn't get picked up later. Like I'm happy that we don't see Lee again necessarily. But that bit where she says goodbye to him and I'll find you. And then there's that mm. moment where he goes to call for her but he can't because of his stutter. And that's classic press gang, isn't it? <laughs> Remember, <laughs> Remember Kenny has has the Irish girlfriend who's a wrong number each time and they just keep missing one another and they never catch up just out of sheer silly coincidence and it's that again, you know. Mm. I also like in that scene how the teleport only carries three people at a time, <laughs> which is very much the arc in space, <laughs> which is what Muffet loves. Yeah. I always look at that and thinking, you didn't think to build a teleport with more than three pads on it? <laughs> I would have loved it if Lee had been intercepted by the Time Lords and sent back to the beginning of Scar. It would have been amazing. <laughs> <laughs> Thought experiment, can you imagine this kind of, well, I call it a subplot, but really it's the main plot of Forest of the Dead being given to a companion in the classic series. Can you imagine Barbara in this kind of plot? Very much so. She could really, like, imagine having that kind of other Mm. life for a companion. We've said before that that Donna is, you know, noted as being close to Sarah Jane, but I feel she's closest to Barbara. Absolutely. Mm. It's what occurred to me all throughout watching it. I I just kept having a vision of Barbara popping into my head and thinking, imagine if we had an episode with Barbara doing this kind of story. Mm. Space Museum 3. (laughs) <laughs> there are moments in the Crusades too where she has Yeah, but, well, that's what I was thinking, Crusades, Where yes. she plays a maternal role. Yeah, you know, Donna loses her children, Barbara gets to unravel a cardigan, the things are clearly <laughs> on emotional <laughs> levels. <you know. laughs> when we're talking about the truth of companions and the truth of interiority of characters. And I do like that the Doctor is always left out by Moffat. We don't get interiority until later. I don't really enjoy it when we do. I would rather the Doctor simply be the cipher of who we wanted to be when we grew up and that was always slightly misty. That was also sort of fiction mist, Mm -hmm. wasn't it? We (laughs) never really got what that was. It's just a little, little spritzer of that. But Donna is us... 
And I really do love that those moments in the playground that you alluded to, Peter, that you pointed to, are always with Miss Evangelista, who is now Picasso's weeping woman. So the black veil, it's no coincidence that she has the same arrangement of the face. It's no coincidence that Picasso's portrait was about a woman who had lost a child ah. in childbirth. Or there are many stories and narratives about it. And he painted at least three versions because the bloke was up for cash. You know, <laughs> but it's very, and it was stolen. It was stolen famously some years ago. So it was certainly in the news around at the time. But the the sensitivity and the gentleness and the the porosity of his of his feminine um, protagonists and also the way that the narrative will seep through them and, and not always benignly, not always safely. I'm absolutely convinced that the evangelista character is a nod to the Me Too movement. And even though this was written, what, 2006, seven, that was already a time when we were getting news it was it was out there, and and Moffat under this is the thing that I find so frustrating about his writing. He really are, does understand women, and yet he will project them or put them onto this really Apollonian concept of the the Athenian warrior. There's this this remote princess of of callous, humorous indifference, and I was like, just really come on. But again. That's your proclivity, and that's also a part of how you write, and, and one of the aspects that you adore about women. But when when she says, I, "I really have an emotional moment when this character says this behind the veil," and he uses it again with um, with his Silurian character Vastra mm-hmm. with further on. So he, he this is this is something he's quite cogent with. I have the two things you need to see absolute truth. I am brilliant, and I am unloved. Now, every child, as a fan, every teen fan person had that absolute perspicacity when they realized they were the only ones in the room who got it and all the other kids were into sport or whatever else or were playing in the playground, but we were the ones with our heads buried in a Terrence Dix. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, yeah, I could talk about Louis C.K. or Joe Biden even or, you know, Jan um, Ganemeshi or Weinstein, of course, Jean-Claude Arnaud, who was famously touching up a Scandinavian princess and the reason the Nobel Prize was delayed for four years because of what he was up to right at the time that this was being written it's definitely feeling to me it's about the fragility of traveling or becoming a part of that which you've always aspired to so for donna it's i'm finally in the escape clause i'm finally in that library that is now the living truth and be careful what you wish for because you'll just come back to what you've missed out on and for her as you were saying johnny it's about a family for miss evangelista it's about yeah, when she says I'm his um, practical everything, what were the words that she uses? I'm his. Um... Anyway, when she describes her, her role with Steve Pemberton, it's um, true yeah, she, to she me. She says I'm his personal everything. I'm his personal everything. I don't think there's any doubt as to what that means hmm. at all. And we can veil it and say, oh, no, no, that's not the case. Come on. We know what Moffat is like and we know where he goes with these things. And he goes pretty dark if you choose to have a look for it. The one thing that's coming out of this is that he gets what it is to be, to be a child and to be, and to be in, in a point of fragility. And, and that's why I have real problems with what's going to come up in the next few years. But in this story, I feel he gets it absolutely right and that's why I love it.
Bravo, Richard. Oh, okay. <laughs> Do you think Cal is like that as well? So, Cal is in a world that's been created to kind of keep her happy and she has a fake father and then during the course of the episode she switches her father off inadvertently and I think she starts to come to a realisation that um, her world's not real and it's a suspicion that she has. Remember when Miss Evangelista says or goes to say to Donna that this world is fake, it's VR, she's watching it on television and screaming out, no, 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 don't, you mustn't tell her. And so what happens to Cal is that that world that we see her in, that domestic world that we see her in, just falls away and that's the point at which she um, goes to destroy the computer. That's when she puts it on self-destruct because she suddenly realised that it's it's not real. I think Cal's story is one of the innocence of childhood cannot last. Yeah. You know, there's there's going to be, you can't protect children from it forever and there's a point at which everything's going to become very real. But then at the end of the story, something interesting happens in that at the very end of the story, the Donna's two children return. Yeah. And she's now with them and there's three beds in that bedroom. Yeah. And Riversong has seemingly taken the role of the parent. Yeah. And so what seems to have been happening for Cal is that she was in control of this world. She had undue responsibility for this world for someone so young. And in her revised version of it, her improved version of it, she's kind of given the parental role to somebody else. Yeah. To so that she her innocence of that childhood can be maintained a little longer. So when Mr. Lux describes the world that was created to house Cal, a world where she could travel anywhere, where she had all of the world's books, all of that, it's still described as being partial or incomplete. It's not a world Mm. that is in any way satisfying. And she's surrounded by people who aren't actually real. And then she suddenly got these, you know, 4,000 people in there and, you know, the whole thing is breaking down and that's the reason why the world that's created is, you know, not satisfying. Mm. And, of course, that's not the role of a child. A no. child's not meant to be rescuing people from certain death. Yeah. And so, so that's the, the broken bit. Like, yeah, in the story it says the world's incomplete, but I suppose in the narrative it's that that girl's behaving in a way she shouldn't have to behave. Right. And so what we get at the end is a world with some other people in it that Cal is now, and that's something the Doctor gives her, Mm. like Cal is now living with the crew, you know, with other Dave and proper Dave and Anita (laughs) and Miss Evangelista and and, and River. Mm. Um, And so she has people to look after her. So it's a proper world now because it's peopled in a way that it wasn't originally. Mm. It's peopled with family too, yeah. which is this, which is this recurring motif in in Moffat's work. And the the ending does confuse me, I must admit, because I'm not entirely sure why we have to leave River and her crew in the the cyber world. Everyone else gets, I don't know, reconstituted from the flesh banks or something. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. there's something, and it doesn't. It's not entirely clear to me, unless I've missed something. What the difference is, like if everyone else can be turned, isn't uh, it because they were uploaded um, at their point of death, whereas everyone else was teleported in? Yeah, but it's a kind of science fiction conceit, yeah. isn't it? You know, yeah. it's a kind of slight. You know, it's it's not really very substantial. And so maybe the maybe what you're saying, I guess I'm thinking about this as you say it. Maybe the doctors made a deliberate decision to people that world for Cal. 
And though, I think, I think too, there is something about death. You know, the, the doctor cheats death, but he doesn't cheat it completely. And so those people are dead and they can't come back. And Donna wasn't dead. Like her physical essence still existed. Miss Evangelista sort of says that. Mm. Um, and so she can be reconstituted at any time. Um, but the others are dead. And, and so, you know, like the doctor still cheats and there is that, like we may as well talk about it now, that incredible final scene where Moffat kind of anticipates Day of the Doctor um, with the sonic screwdriver. The idea that in all of the time that the Doctor's had a relationship with River, he's known that she will die here and so he's had hundreds of years to work out how to save her. Mm. And so the episode ends, like the episode actually properly ends with the Doctor and Donna, you know, they put the diary down, they put the sonic screwdriver down and they walk away and that's the end of the episode. And then suddenly you get the Doctor doing this incredible heroic thing and actually becoming the Doctor that River remembers mm. um you know Moffat's doctor starts here i think and it's in that scene and it's that thing that we talked about last week where Moffat will have something hiding in plain sight and then suddenly you'll realize the significance of it suddenly the screwdriver means something different it originally meant that he had a close relationship with River, but now it means that he's worked out how to mm. save River. And River's voiceover and the Doctor's heroic run and he dives down the thing and all of that. It's so incredible. And it's mm. that that gives him the confidence to, you know, open the TARDIS door with a with a click of his fingers and, the, and then wander off to new adventures. It's incredible. I think it's absolutely incredible. And I do think that it would rob it if he just saved her, mm. you know, and she's alive again. Mm. You know, he saves her, she's saved, but they're all still dead. Mm. Yeah. That that ending is magnificent. And mm. I think again it's the two it's two people that we mentioned before. It's Eris Lynn and Murray yeah. Gold as well here. And that beautiful shot where we zoom in on the book and the screwdriver. And you're right, it, it's like we're comfortably waiting for the episode to end. We know it's about time for the episode to end. This is the, all the signals are that way. The Doctor runs back into shot out of focus yeah, and it restarts. It's lovely. It's really good. Murray's great this episode. All of the music in the – or a lot of the music in the uh, virtual reality thing, the notes are reversed. The sound of the notes is reversed. So you hear the attack after the note is played and it's really just sort of adds to that sort of slightly off-putting thing. And it also uses the original Doctor's theme uh, in a really big way because this episode is so much about the Doctor becoming something even greater. Is there a a theme for Donna in there that's then used with that kind of that note which goes mm, like that start and it's reused very heavily in Turn Left and yeah. Journey's End and it's almost like her motif. Yeah, I don't know what that is, or it's like a trick that Gold discovers for this episode and then kind of reuses. But I think it's appearing for the first time here, and it is it is trying to make the music more off-putting. It's the it's the library music with the chimes, you know, the little bells which is supposed to denote childhood in a way um, made weird. There's some nice electric guitar in there. It sort of segues out of one of those Donna World sequences into the Doctor and River and them running away from the Vashta Narada. It's electric guitar strings. Mm. It's just beautiful. 
In fact, whenever the little girl is watching that on television, the music is cheesier hmm. than it is on our television <laughs> version of it. It's like it's Murray doing television music for those particular scenes. It's great. Richard, that line you were talking about earlier about um, to seek absolute truth, you have to be brilliant and unloved. Does that mean that the Happiness Patrol seeks absolute truth? <laughs> <laughs> Do you think? It's another one that really hits all the marks. So, yeah, maybe. That's that, You can't call anyone pretty. You can't accuse them of prettiness in that story. <laughs> that, uh, that scene uh, which Moffat writes on the park bench about pretty and unloved, it has two brilliant lines of dialogue. There's that. And there's also Donna's classic... I'm not real, but I've been dieting. <laughs> which just been come dieting from opposite ends of the spectrum and are both brilliant. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that's a proper character moment in one line of dialogue, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, I was just wondering who she's saying that line to because the world is Donna's, right? So Donna's maybe Lee, they're the only real people in it. Who exactly in that world has found her to be brilliant and unloved? Well, but don't you think that there are... 4,000 other people that we just don't see? Like, are all of those people that have been saved by Cal living similar types of lives? I, I don't I don't know. Maybe that's right. Maybe they are all living kind of similar lives and she flits between each yeah. of them. I think some I had, of them I had the idea that they were, as he says, stuck in the email. Like, <laughs> that they were kind of in some loop and that actually the world we saw was the only world oh, maybe. which was being actualised. But I, I don't really know. I thought we might be getting a little bit more of, um, ooh, Mind Robber or some other stories where, you know, there's definitely one that's doing Kurt Russell escaping from New York every day. <laughs> sure. I think the, the, the storyline about a character being in a VR world is a difficult one to get right. And so Moffat will try it again in Extremis, I yeah. think. And I think it's much better here where, um, where it's not the focus of the full episode. It's a kind of detour during the story into this. And for some reason it feels like much more... Um, I don't know why, but it feels much more fundamental to Donna that if this world is real, like if Miss Evangelista says, look, this whole thing is wrong, can't you see it? If you pay attention for five minutes, you'll see none of this adds up. For some reason, that seems much more important to Donna um, than in extremists because I think the risk with those stories is that you get to the end of them and they say, oh, it was all VR. And you think, well, why did you put me through 45 minutes of that? Yeah. Like, that does hasn't appeared to be very consequential. So, Moffat will go on to demonstrate that he has a real kind of boomer understanding of what computers are. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I was actually surprised by what a good job he did uh, this time when he uses all his computer terminology. But I think the reason that this virtual world is successful is that it's television. And so, he knows a lot about television yeah, and true. that's a virtual world that he's been in the habit of creating for sort of ages and ages and yeah. actually watching it watching it again talking about boomers understanding of technology watching the kid watch television is a really weird thing <laughs> because actually kids that age won't watch television anymore and so you watch she's watching it on this big cathode ray television she shouldn't really be doing that anyway yeah and and then the telephone is a rotary telephone yeah, yeah. so she really has created a kind of retro world for herself to yeah. live in Although I'm also confused about how far in the future this this 51st is. 51st century. Oh, the 51st so, century. Yes. So, yeah, so it really can't be her natural habitat no. that 
that it's a historical artifact she's decided to live in. Yeah. No, well, I think that that Moffat sets that virtual mm. reality a few years before even 2008 because it's childhood memories of watching TV. Yeah. You know. yeah. yeah. Uh, and it gives him the chance to do that. Like that incredible scene where um, Cal has activated the self-destruct and the world's going to be destroyed and the doctor is trying to attract her attention and all of her robot toys are going crazy around her and stuff, I think is is properly scary and mm. stuff. And so I think that that the world, that VR world is set in the past for our benefit rather than Yeah, Cal's. sure. I fear it's going to date badly. Like if this is the Barbara Wright version of it, you know, made in 1965, we're watching a small child watch on this tiny little 405 <laughs> screen and wondering why they've chosen that particular version of the world to live yeah. in. But I think, I mean, all Doctor Who dates badly and so the advantage of being up to date is that, is that it's at least up to date mm. to the people it's first broadcast <laughs> to. <laughs> So we start I think we start to get a clear idea this this episode of the relationship between River and the Doctor and I think we get a better idea of what the Doctor is from it as well. And this is a scene that I've mentioned actually for ages like in previous episodes where we've been talking about David Tennant where it becomes clear that the Tennant Doctor performance is just a, a mask. Um, well, doc- the Doctor is the least real thing in any episode of mm. Doctor Who. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. And Moffat may be one of the first people to identify that or to name check it. So he, when, when he, when she's, when she, I think she calls him later on the unnamed God, doesn't she? And you know, we've got a lot of old text references, not just biblical, but you know, even going back to Ur. Yeah, yeah, we? yeah. There's these. He's not meant to be. He's a palimpsest. He's constantly rewritten both by the actor and by the performance codes that are brought to to each season. No, he's not real. Mm. He's just a uh, punt up the river Styx. <laughs> <laughs> it's a lovely moment and it, what I really get from it is, is of course, how flawed the Doctor is by it. You can see it on Tennant's face. And then how in, instantly he has to go, I just have to park this for a little while because I've got more important things that are that are happening right at this moment to me. But the way that he parks it is by going straight into the tenant doctor performance, you know, mm, by yeah. saying silly things, talking about hair dryers, <laughs> you know, like all of that sort of stuff. Like instantly he goes back into the shtick that we've been irritated by kind of yeah. on and off um, for the last few years. Nathan's looking at me. <laughs> <laughs> me as well, I think. Um, but that moment, and it makes it clear, I think, that they're married. And at the end... When the Doctor's chained up and is unable to rescue River, um, he says, you know, he makes it clear that that was his name. Like, mm, it isn't yeah. explicit. Anita asks about it, you know, and the Doctor refuses to answer. And we will find out later. That See, I think there is wriggle room there. I think it is. I think that Moffat's smart enough to leave enough kind of um, space in it in case things don't pan no. out the way he thinks it's going to pan out but it is it is very it is very much implied that that's the answer yeah i also think that the other thing is that uh when the doctor says that saving all these people is his job and her reply is what you mean i'm not allowed to have a career now you know like that's a married couple thing and in fact doesn't mr lux call them on it doesn't mr lux say 
all these people are going to die and you two are standing there squabbling like an old married couple. Yes. And you kind of go, wow, that's what they are. Yeah. And that's where the wriggle room is because they both look at each other guiltily instead of River Song going, yep, you've guessed it. Right, let's move on. Yeah. You know, so, I mean, I I think that Moffat's always got one eye on, on leaving all his options open, I think. I think that's probably true, but I also think too that once it becomes a matter of speculation and it will, you know, when um, she turns up again next season, what's the nature of the relationship between the Doctor and River, that once that becomes a question, the only possible satisfying answer is that they're married. Mm. And it's a little bit like Missy in Series 8. Who is Missy? Is there a possible answer to that question apart from the one that Moffat comes up with, one that wouldn't have just been absurd or uninteresting or Mm. whatever? And so I think they're very clearly playing it as husband and wife and I'm glad that that was the eventual, you know, that they're not sort of spores or she's somewhere between the 13th and 15th. Yeah, yeah. Any sort of science fiction explanation would have been so dumb. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a lovely well done moment but it does bring to the foreground the annoying thing of what is the Doctor's name. Why do we care? Hmm. It's it's the start of Moffat placing the Doctor at the heart of the program and stories about the Doctor being important. Except that the Doctor's at the heart of the program and the name of the program brings up the question, what is the Doctor's name? That's right, but there's a reason that we haven't addressed this so far in that we're not interested. They're central mysteries of the program which don't need to be talked about. But they can't be resolved. That's the other thing. There can't be an answer. Is it Gordon? I think it's Gordon. (laughs) This is a lot older than Doctor Who. Now, Are I'm you touching to think, Nathan when you say yeah. touching Nathan? Is a lot of, no, he's not on the Doctor Who. We just, uh, on, on Bond Finger, um, Johnny, you should come along for one of those. They're heaps so fun. That would require um, me to watch a Bond Finger. We do, no, we just do trashy 60s spy fi now. But we did an episode of The Prisoner. And, of course, the whole MacGuffin of that is why did you resign? He won't answer. They all know why he resigned. It's the most obvious thing. But there is that little point of will you give away the defence of your persona, will you drop your mask, Dr. Tennant? Will you reveal your truth? Will you just show us who you are? Yeah. No. That is the reason that I go on because you don't know my history because you will not touch me. You, you see me every day. I'm in the intimacy of this idiot box, this idiot's lantern in your, in your house. But no, you will not touch me. I remain inviolate. My boundaries are secure, as should yours be. And I think you can see that in the latest series with Jodie Whittaker is that, you know, we um, we don't get enough of that kind of distance. We don't get enough of the Doctor saying, Absolutely. here is the space between you and me. Um, She's started to do it a bit this year. She has. Yeah. She has. But I think you can extend that question about the, it's the so what question. So she knows the Doctor's name. So what? What does that matter? I think also you can extend it to her being his wife. It's kind of so what? Well, Lots of people have spouses. What is actually interesting or dramatic about that scenario? It's playing against the same thing that Nathan was talking about there uh, with, um, you know, the program is called Doctor Who. It's about the Doctor. The reason that that's important is the Doctor has never had a wife over 30-something seasons, and so why does he have one now? So it's playing against the expectations of the program. That's why it's Mm. important. But I struggle to think about what is actually... Yep, sure. So it's it's the absence of it which has made it interesting up until this point. But once we've got it, what sort of what stories does that open up? What is it that's any really any different to any of the other relationships he's had throughout 
How many years is it? I forget which point. I forget how many years it is at this point. But I think that what's interesting is the number of stories that it doesn't close down, that Moffat actually will go on. Like Moffat gives the Doctor a wife here for the first time, something so unthinkable that in the 1980s there was that fake out. It was Caves of Androsani number one, the Doctor's (laughs) wife. Yeah, yeah. You know, that there was a story that that John Nathan Turner was thinking of having a story called The Doctor's Wife and it was a ruse. He was trying to discover who was leaking stuff from the production office or whatever. <laughs> Little known fact, that episode would have had Crow Timmon as his wife. <laughs> 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 so absolutely unthinkable. Moffat does it and the show still carries on. Mm. And what it does open up is the sort of things that we see in that River Song arc. I think that that scene where... The Doctor, um, where the Doctor is forced to sit there and watch while she sacrifices her life and he has to sit there opposite that smoking chair for ages and ages afterwards. Mm. And then he has a relationship with his woman and he knows exactly how she's going to die. And he's doing that while he doesn't know her yet. All of that's in his future. And I think that that's something that the show has never done to the Doctor. The 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 show very rarely properly gives the Doctor something interesting to f- have feelings about. Mm. And here I think it really, really does it properly. And and because I am a dedicated and professional podcaster, I watched The Husbands of Riversong last night and it's so resonant. Like the end of it is, you know, the end of that story is, is so good and for a similar reason, I think. So are you saying that... The relationship about the husband and wife relationship gives it added meaning that if it was Donna's death that he was seeing preemptively and yes. knew that he had to had to have a whole season of Doctor Who with her before watching her die, you it wouldn't have the same emotional resonance. And I don't think you can do that with a regular character as well, like with with a companion. I think that the her distance, River's distance from the program, her role as a sort of occasional guest star makes that possible as well. As our new brigadier. Yeah, well, and I love those characters too. I love when there are semi-regular cast members. I think mm. Doctor Who can be very lonely if it's just two people travelling around the world, none of whom have any friends. Mm. You know, I I think that having a semi-regular, she lifts every show that she's in, I think. And, you know, Matt Smith's first show, the first one that he shoots is that one with River, The uh, Time of Angels. Mm. And I think Mm. it's so great and she absolutely lifts it. It gives him more interesting things to do. Mm. And he'll do that over and over again. He will make things that we might think are breaking changes to the program. He'll bring back Gallifrey. He'll show us the Doctor as a small child. All of these things that, you know, he'll we'll actually see the moment where the Doctor and Susan get in the TARDIS at some mm. point over the next few years. All of those things he does and it doesn't change what sort of stories we can tell. It doesn't break the program. It's sort of audacious and interesting, but it, mm. you know, it lets us still do silly nonsense um, as well. Moffat's longevity as a showrunner means that he can return to those things. He he can sort of pepper those things through, but he can return to it again and again. So, for instance, you have the river story being told over the course of three doctors Mm. um, and then ending up in The Husbands of River Song. 
and talk about the name of the Doctor, he will return to that, of course, in the Matt Smith era in a big way. It will be part of the uh, the lead up to the 50th anniversary. But then he will return to it in the very final scene that he writes for Doctor Who, which is Peter Capaldi's regeneration, where virtually the last thing he says is, you mustn't tell anyone your name except maybe children. They can hear it. I think I think I'm paraphrasing that, but something along those lines. Um, and it's the it's the fact that he is the showrunner for so long that makes those things part of the fabric of the show. I think. Hmm. All right, so it's time for picks of the week. Uh, so let's start with Johnny. Well, I um I have a very I have a very quick and efficient um, pick of the week. I think that people should go to Wikipedia and remind themselves of the plot of The Time Traveller's Wife by mm. Audrey Niffenegger. I don't think you should read the book. Um, I remember reading it years ago and I thought it was really um, uninteresting and cliched and <laughs> not my thing at all. But uh, Moffat's in production or pre-production, I think, for his version of it. Mm-hmm. And he's made. And I think now is a good time just to remind yourself about what <laughs> happens in it. Spoiler alert, you might know already. (laughs) (laughs) True. Peter? I have three very quick picks of the week. I think you should go and watch Tomb of the Cybermen uh, to see the original iteration of Mr. Lux in Kaftan. (laughs) (laughs) So true. Some might say a more entertaining performance. but I think you should also go and watch Relics from Star Trek Next Generation to see uh, maybe the original iteration of someone being caught in a transporter buffer and uh, living a life. But I also think that... As we were talking last week about um, two very clever writers and their relationship, uh, Stephen Moffat and Russell T. Davies, I think read some of the novelizations that they did of the new Mm. series, which came out a year or two back, because at the time they did a press tour – a uh, short-lived press tour, and it was just a joy watching the two of them together in the same room, bouncing off each other, and clearly just having the greatest of professional respect for each other's work. My pick of the week doesn't have that much to do with this, although it kind of does. I really like what Naomi Klein's just written on Trump. <laughs> <laughs> and it does kind of reflect on we were talking about how an isolated child can behave in their own world. And mm. I think you know where I'm going with that. But she was also a really good writer on um, the misappropriation of power, both taken away from women and and the misuse of power when you have it. And I maybe that's maybe that's a bit broad for this story, but it triggered those thoughts in me. So maybe other people did as well. Now I really like what she's written. You can just look it up online and you know just read a blog on it. You don't have to buy the book. That's I just found it quite interesting. And there were parallels in this story for me on how it feels to be an, a child and be alone, and that can produce both greatness and empathy, and it can also produce the political situation we're in right now. And Richard does, in fact, turn into, like this episode, a meditation on death, because I'd be on board with that. <laughs> <laughs> well, that is, death walks with us at every moment of life. I think that Moffat's pretty clear on that as well. Maybe he's saying turn the TV off and go and play in the park, but then you'll also find out that you take your TV with you. It's in your head all the time. <laughs> So mine does have something to do with this story. TARDIS Eruditorum by L. Sandefart was obviously a years-long project covering all of Doctor Who up until the end of the Matt Smith era. And because of the way that the River Song story was told, um, she 
mixed up the order of the River Song episode. So they would appear out of sequence chronologically as she was going through the rest of the program. And so the very, very last TARDIS Arudatorum entry was the Silence in the Library Forest of the Dead review, not a review, essay. And not an essay, it's exactly 100,000 words long. And to give you some idea, Pride and Prejudice is 122,000 words long. So it's novel length and... It tells the entire story of Doctor Who as she's discovered it through her travel through all of that entire era of Doctor Who, Uh the 50 years of it that she covers in that first run. It's really incredible. It's well worth a read. And if you don't have time to read all of Tardis Eruditorum, and maybe you don't, you may have time to read that. It's really an extraordinary piece of work. that was more emotionally draining than one of our normal episodes, so next week we're planning to go on holiday. (laughs) Not Florana, not Okinos, not Apalapuchia, not Zine 4, and not Orphan 55. (laughs) Instead, we'll be taking a lovely trip to a diamond planet called Midnight. We'll see you there. In the meantime, you can find us wherever you get your podcasts and you can keep up with us at Flight Through Entirety on Facebook, at FTE Podcast on Twitter and on our website, flightthroughentirety.com, where you'll find links to our other podcasts, Bondfinger and Jody Into Terror. Where can people find you, Johnny? Uh, find me on Twitter at Johnny Spandrel and go and read my blog at randomhoonas.com. Brilliant. So until next time, sweet dreams, everyone. Thank you very much for listening and good night. Good night. Good night. Good then. <laughs> that was Flight Through Entirety, starring Nathan Bottomley, Peter Griffiths, Johnny Spandrel and Richard Stone. Theme arrangement by Cameron Lamb, strings performance by Jane Orberg. This episode, Our New Brigadier, was recorded on the 23rd of February 2020 and released on the 10th of May. And from all of us, congratulations to father of the podcast, Brendan, and his new husband, Rod, on their wedding last Friday. After all, love in all its forms is the most powerful weapon we have because love is a form of hope and like hope, love abides in the face of everything. 100,000 words, wow. Certainly better than Pride and Prejudice. Oh. Oh. (laughs) Yeah. No zombies. Shall I just go and strangle the dog? No, I think that was okay. lived a full life. Just a second. People said the same about Dodo. (laughs) (laughs) She was just strangler. She lived, you know, a full life for 19 episodes. I suddenly realised this week that Dodo and Ace are the same character. (laughs) Where'd you get that? I like it, but where'd you get that? Well, they're they're, they're Cockney orphans. They're straight kids. Both called Dorothy. Yeah, they're both called Dorothy. (laughs) Oh, they're so so evil. I wonder if that was deliberate. (laughs) Who wrote the character of... Nah. No. I mean, I really want that to be true, but I'm not seeing it. I'm remembering Sophie Aldred's essay, little piece she wrote for Fanderson when nobody had ever heard of her, and the show was forgotten. Even the fans weren't watching it. But she was a member of Fanderson. It's all been the show, and it's been great.
Your Sophie Aldred impersonation is uncanny. Well, we saw that DVD when she said, well, I'm much more upper middle class. Yeah, she did say quite upper middle class. She actually, she does actually say it on one of the interviews and I've sort of hated her forever because of it. She's a shallow, silly girl. But she, although therefore a lot of fun to play with. Yeah, she, she, um, it was, it, that's why the Cartmel stories are great because they are just fans making it for themselves. Mm. But I, I wouldn't be surprised, Cartmel would probably be dark and evil enough to do <laughs> to that. Do it. <laughs> let me, let me, can we just go through this incredibly quickly before the dog barks again? Because she, she hasn't been fed and it's four and that's why she's barking. She won't stop. Yeah, it's nearly five. Okay.